27 verses long, but it is packed. And I think it may seem easy at first glance, but there are some hard things in there to understand. <clears throat> and you must be a Berean. Acts 17, Paul said of the Bereans, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It is your job to fact, fact check. Do your own study. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of the word. <clears throat> Sorry. To rightly study the Bible, we have to interpret the text in the light of the context. You can't yank a sentence out of the context and get a accurate meaning. We must pay attention to the historical background, ask ourselves who the audience is, what did it mean to them, what a vine or a servant means to us today is totally different than what it would have meant to them, to the disciples. So let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you took the form of a servant. You humbled yourself and became obedient to death. And through that, you have provided us with salvation. Um, you loved the unlovely. And we're so thankful for that. Pray that you would give us deeper understanding as we move here, through here. Help us to handle your word correctly. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, <coughs> sorry, ladies. Okay. Um, this is a map, sorry, it's so small, of what they think Jerusalem looked like at the time. So we're going to use our imagination a little this morning. Chapter 14 ended with, rise, let us go up from here. All the disciples get up. We don't know where exactly the upper room was, um, where they celebrated Passover, but it's thought to be kind of in that bottom left-hand corner of the map as you see it. Their minds were still swirling. They're not quite getting what Jesus was saying. They thought Jesus was going to be their political Messiah. But things have kind of taken a left turn. So they headed towards the Mount of Olives. And you can see that over on your right side. You see the Kidron Valley running through there. And Jesus is still teaching them as they walk on their way. As they approached the Kidron Valley, they might have looked over their shoulders and have seen the temple standing there. You can see that big square. That is where the temple was. And it faced east, so they were looking at the front of the temple. Josephus, who was a Jewish priest and historian, described the temple facade <clears throat> as covered with massive gold plates, and he wrote that a large golden vine hung with golden fruit above the large door leading into the inner sanctum. Now, we don't know exactly what the front of the temple looked like, since we don't have Instagram photos. Um, 
And so these are some artist renderings of what it may have looked like. It may have been like a band with the gold vine on it across the top. It could have been uh, like the picture on your left with uh, large vines growing up the columns with uh, grape vines hanging from it. But, but as they were uh, walking... Maybe they looked over their shoulder and they saw the temple. They saw this huge vine reflecting the setting sun. They were confused, so Jesus gave them an analogy to help them. He was preparing them for an intense three days of trial and disillusionment. The coming trouble would reveal their fault lines, their character issues, that were deep in their hearts. And so Jesus instructed the disciples of the necessity of abiding in him during the turbulence that they were quickly coming on by looking at the vine. Verse 1, chapter 15, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, this is the last of Jesus' I am statements. I am the true vine. A great deal of New Testament imagery depends on the Old Testament. So you have to read the Old to understand the New. The Jews of the time would have been familiar with the illustration of a vine. The Old Testament said that Israel was a vine. What is the purpose of a vine? To bear fruit for its owner. Psalm 80 refers to Israel as a vine. It talks about how God took them out of Egypt and planted them. They had deep roots. They set out branches, but they disintegrated and the neighboring nations plundered them. The psalm pleads with God to look down from heaven and have regard for the vine. And two of the verses, Psalm 80, verse 17, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we shall turn back from you and give us life, and we will call upon your name. God had given Israel every possible benefit. If ever there was a nation that should have succeeded, it was them. They flourished, but then they failed, and God withdrew his protection over them. But the hope in that psalm rests on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Once he came, the people would be made strong and faithful, and they would again call on the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. The vine of Israel produced wild grapes, not cultivated grapes. Instead of practicing justice, it practiced oppression. Instead of producing righteousness, they produced unrighteousness and cries of distress. And God dealt with the nation of Israel. He corrected them. They'd change for a little while, but then they would fall back into old habits. And this resulted in divine judgment. Then God sent the true vine, 
the genuine vine, the real thing. And you thought Coke was the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. The true vine would accomplish all Israel failed to do. Israel was to obey the law. They were to be a light to the nations. They failed. Jesus was the light of the world. He obeyed perfectly. He was the true vine. He produced the fruit that Israel failed to produce. So what does a vine dresser do? He takes care of the vine. The father took care of the son. He cares for the branches that are on the vine. And who are the branches a picture of? For us, believers. The disciples lived in an agrarian culture, and they clearly understood what pruning was. No vine continually produced good fruit unless somebody cared for it. I found a a blackberry vine on our property last spring. My husband said it kept grabbing him when he was trying to mow the grass. So I got a trellis, and I propped that thing up and fastened it onto the trellis. But then as spring went by, it just had these little puny blackberries on it. I should have Googled how to take care of a blackberry vine. I would have learned that you have to prune it to get good fruit. And that only occurred to me as I read this passage. So what is fruit in this context? I think there are three aspects of it. Character, conduct, and converts. In our lesson, we read Galatians 5, where it refers to the fruit of the Spirit. These have to do with our character. In Colossians 1.10, Paul was praying for the Colossians to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That refers to conduct, character conduct, how we walk, Our mission is to produce converts, to share the gospel. Now, if we think about our context here in John, Jesus is preparing these 11 disciples to be the foundation of the church. And what did he commission them with when he left them? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Their mission was to bear fruit by making disciples. Here in John 15, verse 16, that we'll get to in a minute, it says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that is certainly referring to going and sharing the gospel. Produce the fruit of converts, more followers for Jesus. Now, commentaries have different views on what this fruit is, what being cut off means, and other things in this chapter. I love what Martin Luther said. When the angels want a good laugh, they read commentaries. A good Bible commentary is awesome. You know, a scholar spends years studying a book of the Bible. He gathers wisdom from the, you know, centuries of Christian history and his own encounters with God. Commentaries can be a great blessing. While they are terrific as a resource, commentaries are a poor substitution for studying scripture yourself. In the era of the smartphone, we like to get information quickly. 
do not treat a commentary as an infallible expert. Weigh the commentary against the Bible. Scripture illuminates Scripture, which is why at the top of our lesson, it always says, use only the Bible for your answers. Now, if you insist on reading commentaries, you better read a lot of them and not just one because you need to get a more complete view. A a guy who writes a commentary can have one view. It may or may not be right. So if you're going to read them, read a bunch of them. They can be wrong, and you must be discerning. I love 2 Timothy 2.7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Most importantly, ask God to guide you. Back to John 15, verse 2. There are contrasting parallels. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The NIV reads, cuts off. Then every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. In the context, the branches he takes away do not bear fruit, and they are not fulfilling their purpose. These, I believe, are those who profess to believe in Jesus, but their life shows no evidence of saving faith. Who was contrasted in chapter 13? We saw Peter and Judas. Judas professed to believe. He followed Jesus for three years. He looked like a believer, but his real God was greed. Peter, on the other hand, was a true believer, but he needed pruning. The religious rulers thought they were good because they followed all the rituals. They supposed that being by being a descendant of Abraham, that they had a relationship with God. They thought they would be in the kingdom of God. They were wrong. They lacked genuine evidence of believing. Now, don't be confused and think that this is saying that believers can lose their salvation. They cannot. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he had told them, already you are clean. And that should make us think back to chapter 13 when he was washing their feet, and he said to the disciples, and Judas was there at the time, you are clean, but not every one of you. So 11 of the disciples had proved that they were believers, that they were not dead wood like Judas was. They just needed pruning. Jesus had worked on his disciples to strip away things that they loved more than him so that they would depend on him. The false believers, like Judas, would eventually be cut off. Sometimes it looks like they're flourishing, but the vine dresser has it all under control He knows the true heart. Now, you might ask, but in verse 2, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. It says, in me. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And was not Judas one of the 12 up to the Last Supper? Judas had been part of them. He looked like a branch, but he was dead wood. He was one of those branches that was cut off and taken away. Do you see the progression as we move through these verses? We started out with no fruit, and then there's fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. There are branches with no no fruit. They're dead. God takes them away. Then there are branches with 
some fruit, and God prunes them so that they will produce more fruit. It is the sanctifying work God does in the lives of his people. And God is not punitive in this process. Yes, we deserve punishment. We deserve to be lopped off. But Jesus took the punishment for us. When God chastens believers, it is motivated by love. There are character deficiencies, which God wants us to become more aware of. You know, we could have serious heart sins, sinful habits that need to be repented of. Many Christians pray that God will make them more fruitful, but then they don't want the pruning process that follows. The greatest judgment God could bring to a believer would be to leave him alone, let him have his own way. Because God loves us, he prunes us, and encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. And we all know that pruning process can be painful, but we should rejoice because it causes us to produce more and much better fruit. Sometimes God cuts away things that are good, but only so that we can enjoy the best. We may not enjoy this process, but we need it. So, How does God prune us? Sometimes he uses his word to convict us. He can use circumstances. He can use people. God may remove something precious to you, but he knows what he is doing, and we have to trust him. So why does God prune us? One, so that we will bear more fruit. As believers, we can have those useless branches in our life, things that draw us away from God. They may not even be bad things, but they aren't the best for us at that point in life. Removing the useless gives us room for more growth. Snip. We have little sins that drain our fellowship with him. Snip. Pruning away, pruning takes away idols in our life. Snip. He is shaping us into his image. We can have influences from our culture that change our thinking, that shape our thinking in ungodly ways. We can have trauma from our past that affects how we respond to God. God wants us to renew our thinking so that we don't live according to the pattern of the world. J.D. Greer said, The gardener takes out of our lives only those things that are a loss to keep and a gain to lose. I love that. He takes out of our lives only those things that are a loss to keep and a gain to lose. Okay, number two, he prunes so that we will be more dependent on him. We can get very comfortable in life. We can do things our own way. We can be proud of what we're doing for God. We must realize that all we do is only by his grace. Anything that we do in our own strength doesn't lead to greater fruitfulness. He teaches us to rest in him, to depend on him and his strength. Number three, he prunes us to assure us we are truly saved. Hebrews 12.8, 
If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you are not disciplined, you're not a son. Number four, God prunes so that we will glorify him. Verse 8 here tells us, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. We are not to draw attention to ourselves, but to the Father. As God works in the lives of his children, it brings him glory. And Hebrews 12.10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Sharing his holiness brings him glory. So how much fruit do you want your Christian life to bear? If your deepest longing is for much more fruit, then be prepared for the pruning process that is going to lead you there. It is like praying for patience. God isn't just going to zap you with patience. He will put you in a circumstance where he can grow that patience in you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 4 started with the command, abide in me. Well, what does abide mean? It means to make your permanent place. What does it look like? Believing, depending, persevering. The word abide is used 11 times in this chapter, so it's certainly a key point here. The branch only lives as it is connected to the vine. The branch doesn't have life in itself. So if you take a branch, you separate it from the source of nourishment, it's not going to produce fruit. Neither can the Christian if they are separated from God. Fruit bearing is in direct proportion to our intimacy with God. When connected to the vine, the life of the vine flows into it. When we're abiding in Jesus, the Holy Spirit has freedom to flow through us. And if we resist the work of the Spirit, we're not going to grow. If we are distanced from God, there's not going to be fruit. We need to be in his word daily, communing with him. If we aren't, we cut off the life-giving sap from the vine. To abide is not a static relationship, but an ever-deepening, joyful, vital, personal relationship. Verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, what does that mean in this context? Think about the Pharisees. They were going to the temple. They were obedient to the letter of the law. They were making sacrifices, but it didn't have any lasting value. We've seen lots of people do good things on their own. They go to church. They participate in ministry. They donate money. They feed the hungry, all without abiding in Jesus. Unbelievers can appear to bear fruit, but their fruit is phony, like plastic grapes hanging on a vine. 
And what it means, you can do nothing of eternal value unless connected to the vine. If you're not abiding in Christ, whatever you're doing is a waste. It will not last in eternity. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The proper use of the vine is to bear fruit. Failing this, it's only good for one thing, fuel. This is a warning to Jerusalem because they were a useless vine. Ezekiel 15 talks about the wood of the vine only being useful for fuel for a fire. Olive trees have value not only in their fruit, but in their wood. Things can be carved from it. But the wood of the grapevine has no other purpose. No other purpose unless it's bearing fruit. What is the purpose of a fruitless vine? No use at all. Now keep in mind, this is an allegory. It is a vivid portrait of the significance of fruitless vines. It's not talking about salvation. Our salvation was secured by what Jesus did on the cross. Just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful believer is useless, and both are dealt with. And it's tragic for a once fruitful believer to backslide and to lose his privilege of fellowship and service. We are either bearing fruit or we are just burning up the clock. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So abiding is fellowship with Jesus, his words abiding in us. How do we do that? By knowing his word, applying it, conforming to it. Abiding is asking. Well, what is asking? It's praying. So fellowship, knowing God's word, and praying go hand in hand. And you can't short any of these three things and expect to thrive in your Christian life. It's like a three-legged stool. If any of those legs, fellowship with God, applying his word, praying. If any of those legs are shorter than the other, that stool is going to be unsteady. So it is with us in our Christian lives. All need to take place in a believer's life. So what does it mean, and my words abide in you? What do we all struggle with? Memorizing scripture, right? How often do we say, I can't memorize? Well, why do we need to memorize? One, if we have memorized scripture, we can meditate on the word when we can't be reading it. Like driving, I can't be reading it, but if I can remember God's word, I can think about it as I drive. I tend to put on podcasts when I'm driving. I know many of you are music people and you like to listen to Christian music. But we can all benefit from some times of 
quiet meditation to allow God to speak to us, in mulling over the scripture in our heads, we can often get a clearer understanding. But if we don't have the scripture in our heads, then we can't do that. Number two, memorizing helps shape our worldview. It conforms my mind to God's viewpoint. It's speaking truth to us. It contrasts the world's view with God's view. Number three, memorizing guards our minds. If I know the truth of the word, I can detect error when I hear it. And there is a lot of error out there in the world because the devil, the God of this world, is a liar. And God's word is strong against the lies of Satan. Number four, memorizing allows us to minister others when they are in need. Scripture should just be able to roll off of our tongues. But if it's not in our head then, you know, we have to put out our phone and Google a verse while we're talking to someone, and that's not quite as um, in the moment. Scripture can comfort others when they're in crisis, so it needs to be in our heads. Number five, memorizing helps us to counsel ourselves. When we know God's promises and warnings, we can preach to ourselves when necessary. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. We need to remind ourselves of God's truths when we're struggling. We all need to talk to ourselves every now and then and give ourselves a strong lecture when we're not thinking right. I often say to myself, what are you thinking, Laura? Number six, memorizing equips us to share with unbelievers. 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asked you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be prepared. And number seven, why we should memorize? Because Jesus did. Jesus, the word incarnate, knew the written word. He quoted it often. He quoted 24 of the Old Testament books about 180 times in his life that we know of. It's clear he thought scripture as the ultimate authority and the way to understand the heart and the desires of the Father. So why would we not follow the example of Jesus in knowing the scriptures by heart? Why is it so hard? Because it's work. It's discipline. And I confess I fail terribly. In preparing this, I have been hugely convicted. And sadly, I know that if I put more uh, effort into memorizing, it would pay dividends. I have recently found something that has helped me. It's a mnemonic. My small group is working on memorizing John 15, 12 to 17, and we are up to verse 15. And this is my mnemonic. There are these are the first letters of all the words in the verses. Okay, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friend if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So it doesn't give you the entire next word, but it gives you a, you know, the first letter of it so that it jogs your memory. And so I have put this over my desk, and that is how I have been working on our verses in John 15. Um, I have heard of people writing on their arm with a sharpie, the mnemonic for a verse, because then they have it with them all day, right? So far, I have just have written it on a card, but couldn't it be a conversation starter? One of our leaders just had double knee replacement done. I said, Marty, you know, you could write across your chest or something, the mnemonic for a verse, and then, you know, they would all ask what it was. Anyway, so his word abiding in us is more than just memorizing. Even Satan can memorize scripture. Matthew 4, 1 to 10, he quoted scripture to Jesus. The Pharisees had scripture memorized, and it didn't change them. Abiding means the words have to take root and bear fruit. It happens when we encounter the word and the Holy Spirit brings light to it and helps us understand. And then the understanding brings change in our actions and to our thoughts and to our words. It produces fruit, which benefits not only us, but those around us. And God is glorified. Memorizing scripture helps this process because we have the word in our heads accessible at any time. But it is hard. And it is true with many other things. It is a choice that we have to make. But don't we find time for doing the things we want to do? So why does Jesus want his words to abide in our hearts and not just in our heads? Our minds can be affected by the wealth of information that is at our fingertips today. Our minds are fickle. We can change them a hundred times a day on the same subject. And our head can try to convince our hearts of things that are not true. And this is why we must dwell in and on God's words so that the knowledge moves from our heads to our hearts. There is a qualification in our praying, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And that's the problem with some of our prayers. James 4, 2 and 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Our requests can be made for selfish purposes. We tend to be self-centered and self-absorbed. When I am in God's word, I know better how to pray and what to ask for. Often we pray for things like travel mercies, and I'm not saying that's wrong. It is because we want to be comfortable, right? But what if God wants you to be able to share the gospel with someone while you're sitting in a truck stop with a flat tire? Or maybe share the gospel with someone sitting next to you at the airport when your flight is canceled. God may want us to, <laughs> God may want us to be uncomfortable. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
And as we have studied before, that's not a blanket statement that God will answer our prayers just as we ask them. We can know God's will of desire, his revealed will. We can know from the Bible how we are to live. We know he wants us to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. We know he doesn't want us to commit adultery or lie or cheat or steal. He desires all to be saved. Those are his desired will, the things that he has clearly stated. But we don't know God's decreed will, his sovereign will. It was his sovereign will for Jesus to be crucified, for Judas to betray him. God decreed for Paul to have a thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. Paul prayed for God to take it away. God did not. There are just some things that we pray God will do or not do, but God has a purpose in doing or not doing. He might answer in a totally different way than what we prayed for or what we expected. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Obedience is not doom and gloom. The Old Testament repeatedly predicted joy when the Messiah arrived. In rabbinic thought, Joy was imperfect in the present age because of the worries in life and knowing that all die. They thought only in the Messianic era would there be perfect joy. Jesus' claim of fullness of joy, or perfect joy, was a claim to be Messiah. He is the only place to find perfect joy. Now, that doesn't mean life is going to be giggly and giddy. It does mean, however, that even when you are struggling, underneath is still joy. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. My mom used to quote Robert Browning, God's in his world, no, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. Even though the world is in chaos around us, we can still be at peace because of God's spirit living in us. We can have inner joy, regardless of the circumstances. And the more we depend on him, the more we let him prune us, the more joy we will experience. Now, the text shifts to love the world by bearing fruit in it, by loving others. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How had Jesus loved? By being a servant. The love they were to have for one another was so great, it had to include a self-sacrificial willingness to die for one another or die for the gospel. Twice before, Jesus had spoken of his sacrificial death as a commandment from the Father. His love was expressed in his death. The believer's love is also expressed in self-sacrifice. Even though Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen, they didn't understand. They didn't understand that he was going to the cross, that he would die, that he would rise again three days later. His kind of love was different than we find anywhere else in the world. 
There is no greater love. The world's love is conditional, has to be earned and proved, and if you mess up, it's taken away. Jesus' love is unconditional. He loved us while we were still sinners, his enemies, when we were unlovable. He died for the broken, the messed up, the fallen, and he literally died. We can choose to die to self. We can give up our desires for the sake of someone else. And the parable of the Good Samaritan redefined who our neighbor is. It isn't just the person in our literal neighborhood. The only reason we can love the unlovely is because what Jesus did for us. Rather than fighting for our own rights and what we deserve, we lay them down, just as Jesus did. You can make the decision to die to your dreams, your desires, your needs, your wants, and instead lay down your life for a friend, your husband, a neighbor, your kids, a stranger. Now notice it's a commandment, which means love is not a matter of emotional feeling, but of volition. It's a choice. Jesus never commanded us to feel something. He commanded us to do something. It's a decision. It's an action. My commandment, he essentially said, is that you make the decision to love. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Being Jesus' friend was predicated on obedience. This was said to the disciples, but it applies to us too. Jesus considers you his friend, which is amazing. We are flaky, we're fickle, we're foolish, but the Lord looks at us and calls us his friends. He doesn't love us because he has to, but because he chooses to. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, the word here translated as servant, in the Greek, it's doulos, it means slave. But because of the freight that term carries in our society, the translators translate it as servant, and you probably have a note in your Bible that says that. In the culture of the day, of their day, I think this would have been easier to understand. We are not used to the social structure that they lived in. Slavery was common. Some slaves were slaves because they were born to slave parents. Others were captured in war and forced to become slaves. Some people were sold themselves as slaves so that they could have a higher standard of living as a slave than if they had to keep trying to come up with food and living on their own. Some slaves were better educated than their masters and served as teachers to their master's children. Slaves of rich masters had opportunities they would never have had on their own. 
some slaves were so well loved and cared for that they wanted to be slaves for life. But the slave didn't always know the master's plans. In chapter 13, a couple weeks ago, we talked about, is Jesus your teacher, your rabbi, or is he your Lord? Lord means one who has power, ownership, and absolute authority, sovereign ruler. This is owner-slave language. To call Jesus Lord means you are giving him absolute rule over your life. It is denying self and following him. You become his slave. There's benefits to being a slave. You are bought, you are owned, you are cared for, protected, provided for. But the obligation is obedience. If you choose to have Jesus as Lord of your life, you had better count the cost. You are giving Jesus absolute rule. Jesus bought us off of the slave market of sin. He chose us. He purchased us with his blood. And better than being a slave for Jesus is being his friend. And better yet, we are also sons of God and joint heirs with Jesus. And one day we will be a citizen of his kingdom. At this point, what is Jesus preparing his disciples for? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them here in John 15, 16, you should go and bear fruit. So yes, we need the fruit of Christian conduct. Yes, we need the fruit of Christian character. But the most important mission is to go. Go and bear fruit, the fruit of Christian converts. The fruit is people. Going is proof that we love one another. Our mission field is all around us. Praise God for those people who willingly go to the unreached people groups in the world. But you have been placed where you are, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your book club, in your gym, in your grocery store, in your retirement home, to bear fruit for Jesus. Fruit that will abide for eternity, which are people. Well, then Jesus began to prepare his disciples for opposition. The church age was not going to be easy. And he gave them a lesson of the world's hatred of believers. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Now, this, the clause, if the world hates you, is assumed to be true. The reaction of the world to the disciples was going to be just like the world's reaction to Jesus. The world hated Jesus, and so too the world was going to hate his disciples. James 4.4 4 says, friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. The world hates God 
and believers are a reminder of the God they hate. Darkness always hates light. John 3, people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. The world hates truth. They don't believe in absolute truth. They want their own truth. Amos 5.10, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks truth. The world doesn't want their sin exposed. If you say in a loving manner that something is sin, that's considered being hateful. If you don't speak out against sin, the world's going to tolerate you. But think about it. Hate is watching someone who is on the way to eternal pain and torment and not saying anything to them about the real truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is hate, not telling the world. Believers are aliens while they live in this world. They have been chosen out of the world, but they are not removed from the world. We don't get airlifted to heaven when we believe. But the good news is believers are in God's hands. That may involve protection. It may not. From the time of Jesus' birth when Herod tried to kill him until they put him on the cross, the world has been venting their anger against him. And this anger wasn't satisfied with Christ's death. It continues today and is directed at everyone who follows Jesus. No committed believer is going to be admired and well-liked or accepted by the world's evil, Satan-controlled system. Why is there evil? Because Satan has blinded the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, in, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it shouldn't surprise us when unbelievers are hostile towards us. As children of light, we are different from the children of darkness. We have different goals, different aspirations, different perspectives, a different moral and ethic standard. Righteous behavior has always brought persecution. Righteous living goes against the grain of unbelievers because it reveals the distinction between Christ and his holy standards and the world and its unholy standards. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. Since we are God's representatives in the world, we become the object of hatred. They can't kill Jesus anymore, so believers are persecuted in his place. We remind the world of him. Why do they hate Jesus? Because they don't know the Father, and they want to suppress the truth. The religious leaders of the time knew a lot about God, but they didn't personally know God. Many today claim to know God but they don't want to bow their knee to Jesus Christ as a son of God and the only savior of the world. Verse 22, 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. I find these to be tough verses. Remember, we always have to interpret in light of the unity of the Bible as a whole. And it sounds like Jesus is saying that if Jesus had not come, then the world would not be guilty of sin. But we know from Romans 3, all have sinned. Romans 1 tells us man is without excuse because God has shown himself to them. So remember to keep these verses in context. If Christ had not come, the religious leaders would have continued in their way of pretending to be pious. The Jews thought they loved God. The word here for excuse also means cloak or pretext. Jesus ripped away this cloak, the sham of a life they were living. He showed he was the only, uh, he was one with the Father, and in hating him also meant they hated the Father. They couldn't say if only he had come to us, told us he was the Messiah, given us evidence, we would have believed, because it did in fact happen and all fulfilled prophecies. So instead of loving God and loving their neighbor, they hated God and hated their neighbor. Their excuse, their cloak, was taken away, and now they are exposed. Jesus proved who he was by his words and his works. They couldn't plead unbelief. The world today is willing is willfully ignorant of God, but they have no excuse because God came in the flesh. Okay, I'm going to have to skip a paragraph or two. Uh, Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The hate was not based on rational argument or legitimate grounds, but on improper motives. The Jewish religious leaders should have seen this was coming. They had seen the prophecy of the Old Testament regarding Messiah. Even hatred was part of the redemptive plan, and there's a little irony here. There was a huge discrepancy between what their law commanded and what their actions actually showed. They were convicted by their own law. Then verses 26 and 27 talk about the Holy Spirit. He's called the Counselor, the Spirit of Truth. He would help the disciples speak truth. The disciples weren't left on their own to start the church without um, help, and the Holy Spirit was there. He was the divine reinforcement. The Spirit of God would be sent from the throne of God to empower the people of God to witness about the Son of God. So we can't act as if we have it all together, that we've got it all figured out. Instead, we need to be transparent about our own brokenness, our weakness, our failure. We can talk honestly about our need for Christ and bearing witness about him. The Spirit comes and helps us in the hostility of the world. When we are born again, we receive the Holy Spirit, and he indwells us and fills us, brings us joy. He speaks through us what a wonderful resource Jesus sent in his place. Fanny Crosby wrote, Take the world, but give me Jesus. 
in his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, the Lord I see. And he's finished in prayer. Heavenly Father, take this world, but give me Jesus. Help us to love sacrificially. Help us to be willing to go and bear fruit. And thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us on this journey. It's in the Son's name we pray. Amen. Nothing I can do to let you down. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. Ooh. Going through a 